Welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review. Our several-year mission will be to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. We will be reviewing every Star Trek comic book ever published. These stories have been released by Gold Key, Marvel, DC, Malibu, Wildstorm, Tokyo Press, IDW, and others. Star Trek and all that the Star Trek universe contains is copyrighted by CBS Studios, Inc. Hello and welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review with Donovan and Ken. Episode number 90, recorded July 5th, 2012. And this will be part four of the Star Trek Summer Movie Spectacular. And we'll be covering ongoing issues 7, 8, and 9. Yes. Pretty cool. A little mixture between new stuff and a little revisit to an old favorite story. Right. So the first six issues of the ongoing have been retelling of classic episodes and with seven and eight we get our first news story arc which is related to the 2009 movie and somewhat related to nero hence the reason we did those first exactly so these these came out what march april and may of 2012 yes so they're fairly recent right and they continue on what happens after the movie ends and supposedly according to kurtzman and orky this comic book series they won't name specific episodes or issues but is dropping hints about the 2013 star trek 2 cool well i'm wondering in the continuity and i I think the answer is yes to this so in the movie continuity these events actually happened i think so i think think so too they're, they're implying yeah right so well they happened as much as countdown really happened in me well exactly right exactly so they couldn't tell the whole story in the two-hour movie so they had a bunch of comics to tell the rest of the story and in a similar way rather than to have this particular story arc which or a storyline that you're going to see in the next two issues they did it in the comic book but it's all part of the real thing well i i'm hoping so because i like so do you think cumberbach is uh He's not Khan, supposedly. What is he? Um, I don't know. Hmm. I'm wondering if he's part of temporal internal affairs. Oh my gosh. Wow, that'd be cool. He does have kind of like a cool-looking leather jacket on. Or maybe he's uh, the 23rd century's version of Agent Sloan from Section 31. Oh my lord. that has Section 31 has been around a long time, hasn't it? Yeah, because uh, according to the novels, uh, Kirk was on a mission for Section 31 in, uh, ah, dude, I forgot the episode. The one where he goes and gets the cloaking device. Oh, it's called the Enterprise Incident. Enterprise Incident, yes. Yes. But that's, you know, a retcon kind of thing. I don't think that was part of the original screenplay. Right. But I don't know. I mean, I, I you know, I think he's definitely playing a human. And that's really all I know. <laughs> well, he looks—he doesn't look like he has any makeup on in the one picture I saw of him. Yeah, I'm trying not to get too spoilerish, uh, and I think even if I wanted to, I don't know how successful, you know, because I don't think there's a lot of information out yet. But uh, well, they purposely tried to uh, keep it quiet as usual. JJ yeah. likes his—he likes his surprises, right? He likes his mystery box not to be opened early. Yeah, like spoiled little children on Christmas. Exactly. I want to know more. 
So yeah, no, I'm 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 also maybe I'm reading too much into it, but Peter Weller's in it. Right? And Peter Weller was in episodes of Enterprise, so I'm like wondering. Oh. Is he reprising his role, or is he going to be a brand new guy? I'm pretty sure it's a brand new guy. Well, okay, so was he a rich guy? I, I don't remember the particular uh, episode you're speaking of on Enterprise. He was but. a, like, kind of like a human species type person, if I'm remembering his episodes correctly. I so don't know what species he was kind of like a is. radical type character. Oh, he was one of the guys behind the uh, Earth First movement or whatever. Was he? Maybe. I can't mm. remember exactly. I just remember him being kind of nasty. Yeah. Okay. Well. I'm pretty sure he's not going to be the same character, but it would be not. cool if he was. Yeah. Well, he'd have to be in suspended animation or something. But Yeah. We're just really old. <laughs> yeah. He could be really old. He could be really old. If, if uh, McCoy can live to be 150, why can't uh, Peter Weller's character? True. But they may... Yeah. Okay. We're, we're speculating way too much because nobody who's making the J.J. Abrams Star Trek II has probably ever watched Enterprise, so <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure they did not know that was already on Peter Weller's resume. Oh, I bet Orky and, and uh, some of the creative folks have. They're, uh, they're fans. Yeah, I'm, I'm being a little pessimistic, but I, I'm pretty sure they're, they're not at all tied in. Oh, okay. But wouldn't it be a surprise and a good surprise if it was? It would be an interesting tie-in. You'd be like a kid on Christmas. That's right. Look, look. And it he ties has into Enterprise. In his hands. <laughs> it ties into Enterprise, my favorite Star Trek TV show ever. <laughs> I don't know about favorite. Oh, it sounds I like think, it is. I do think it's. I think it gets a bad rap unnecessarily. I agree. It's just again, given that, it's still not my favorite. But um, shall we? Uh, yeah, let's jump begin? into these issues. Let's do it. Okay, so I have the honor of doing issue number seven, Vulcan's Revenge, part one. As uh, Donovan mentioned, publish date is March 2012 for this first one. Writer is Mike Johnson. Artist Joe Phillips. Colorist John Rausch. Letterer Neil Uataki. Creative consultant Roberto Orki. Editor Scott Dunbeer. The cover is a fairly busy one. Half of Nero's face is in the upper right-hand corner in black and white. Half of Spock's head is in the bottom right with a full headshot of Sarek to the left. The outline of a Starfleet badge swoosh dominates the center and is filled in with the forms of six hooded people in a dark cave. Part of a planet is visible in the upper left-hand corner tinged with green light. Romulus, perhaps? Alternate cover A is a black and white version of the first cover. The alternate cover B is a photo of Ohura looking back over her left shoulder. The story opens in a tavern in an out-of-the-way corner of the Delta Quadrant. Quosh, the multi-faced smuggler from Uropenthi, is at a table telling the tale of his escape from the said infamous Klingon prison. He is seated with three customers whose faces and most features are obscured by their dark gray clothing. Quosh says that he is selling them the plans of the deceased Narada, complete schematics from the warp drive to the waste disposal. 
When he turns the plans over to one of the hooded customers, Quoche notices his hand is deformed and missing its thumb and index finger. Quoche is asked to name his price for the plans. He does so and proceeds to consume 14 Romulan ales. Later, the Teleray tavern owner has to kick Quoche out of the tavern when he has fallen asleep at his table past closing time. The three mystery men are outside the tavern watching Quoche being ejected from the building while blathering on about how he will buy his own planet and that no one can tell him what to do anymore. The three consider Quoche a security risk that they cannot uh, risk. One breaks off from the rest to remove that risk. On his way out, he does his best to form the Vulcan Live Long and Prosper hand greeting, but with the missing digits, it somehow loses some of its impact. Meanwhile, on the Enterprise, Spock is beating Kirk at three-dimensional chess for the fifth time in a row. Scotty witnesses the defeat and asks Spock to show him how to execute that winning strategy. Chekhov hails the captain from the bridge, requesting his presence. The ship is approaching the inoperable space relay that they were dispatched to investigate. Ohura confirms it is inoperable and that intentional weapons fire made it that way. Spock and Kirk conjecture this close to the Romulan neutral zone that someone wanted to silence the sector. Kirk asks Chekhov to scan for any warp or impulse traces that would tell them anything about the attackers. Chekhov picks up a faint warp signature, but surprisingly, it is a Vulcan engine signature. Spock says all the Vulcan ships should be with one of the three colony fleets. Any other location would be in direct violation of the edicts of the ruling Vulcan Council. Kirk sarcastically states that Vulcans would never disobey orders. Right, Spock? Kirk orders the ship to maximum warp when the Vulcan trail is sufficiently traced to offer them a course to follow. Meanwhile, elsewhere in space, two ships are in close proximity to one another. On the Vulcan craft, what appears to be Romulan invaders are threatening the crew with hand weapons. They want the Vulcan crew to turn over a device. The Vulcan crew disobeys, and one of the two Vulcans appear to be killed. The remaining Vulcan has a gun put to his head, forehead and gives them what they want. After they take a silver sphere about two inches in diameter, they say they have what they came for. As they move to leave the ship, one of them are unexpectedly stunned by Kirk's phaser. The other takes off in response to the sudden presence of the Federation away team. Kirk misses the second perpetrator. Meanwhile, a security detail led by Boma has some of the perpetrators pinned down in engineering. Though they're pinned down, they do start to beam out of the ship. Kirk and his group catch up to one of the mystery men who has one of the mystery Vulcans from the beginning of the issue at gunpoint. He says he will kill the Vulcan. Kirk says the Enterprise has the ship in a tractor beam, so they are not going anywhere. The perpetrator beams off the ship, and on the way out he says, We will see. Kirk orders the landing party back to the Enterprise immediately. Back on the Enterprise, Kirk is hailed by the smaller Vulcan ship. One of the aggressors, whose face was completely covered by a reflective mask, takes it off and reveals himself to be a member of Nero's crew, facial tats and all. 
Apparently, some escaped the Narada's face and are now bent on avenging their fallen leader. Kirk says they will defeat them, just as they defeated Nero. The Enterprise will tractor their ship back to the Federation. The Enterprise will tractor their ship back to Federation space, where they will stand trial for their crimes. The Nero follower holds out a silver sphere and says. It is a containment sphere that contains the last drop of red matter known to exist. That, along with the plans to build a new fleet of ships like the Narada, will spell doom for what remains of the Federation. The Nero follower warns Kirk that they are leaving now, but if they attempt to follow, they will use the red matter to destroy themselves and the Enterprise. The Romulan followers take off in their Vulcan scout ship. Kirk and Spock speak to the lead scientist, asking for answers. Kirk points out how this situation just does not add up. He wants to know, number one, how a band of Romulans have a Vulcan scout ship. Number two, why is a Vulcan science vessel in a region of space no Vulcan should be in? Number three, the Vulcans on the science vessel were stunned, not killed, by the attacking Romulans, which is not Romulans' normal M.O., Four, the scientists managed to recreate a drop of red matter that is the same substance that destroyed their homeworld. The Vulcan scientist says he does not know about any of Nero's people surviving or how they came to be in possession of a Vulcan ship. He did admit that he and his ship were on a covert mission in this sector when they received the call for assistance from another Vulcan ship. When they tried to render assistance, they were boarded and the red matter taken. Kirk asks him about the classified mission. The scientist refuses to answer, saying that is classified information. Spock says, as per the ruling council, all Vulcan ships are assigned to one of three colony fleets. He is defying the council's orders. Why? Again, he refuses to say. In frustration, Kirk tells Spock to see what he can do with him, but he'll be exiting an airlock if he does not start talking soon. Spock attempts to appeal to the scientist's responsibility as a Vulcan to safeguard Vulcan interests and threatens him with a forced mind meld if he does not start talking. The scientist relents and says the Council themselves ordered them to the former location of Vulcan to retrieve any bits of Vulcan still left for posterity. In the planet's dust, they found microscopic drops of red matter. In time, they gathered them and were able to form a single drop. Soon after that, they were attacked and had to give up the red matter. He says that's all he knows. Spock tells Kirk he thinks he is telling the truth. Kirk tells Spock they had to stop that Vulcan scout ship from getting to Romulus with the red matter and the Narada plans no matter what. He goes on to say that with the subspace relay out, they can't contact Starfleet for permission or reinforcements. Spock says that if Kirk intends on crossing the Romulan neutral zone, and possibly even following them to Romulus itself, then he has no objections. Elsewhere, on the Vulcan scout vessel, the supposed former Narada crew member is speaking to his Vulcan hostage in a very familiar manner. It turns out the hostage is actually a confederate, and in fact, the creator of the plan currently unfolding. The hood that up to now was concealing the hostage's identity is taken down to expose Sarek. 
To be continued. What the heck? I Sarek? Wait a minute. What's he doing on a confiscated Vulcan ship by Romulans? Well, he's he's obviously under duress. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. Or there might be another solution. There might be another explanation. It has something to do with, oh, I don't know, the title of the comic? Vulcan's Vengeance. Ah, what could that mean? Yeah, so it was kind of a surprise to see him at the end, yet... We were already, what, 20-something pages in, and he hadn't shown up and right. since he was on the cover. <laughs> you knew he would show up eventually. So right. It was too bad that the cover kind of spoiled that big reveal. Yeah. Yeah, and the title kind of like, uh, and, you know, it's like, oh, oh, how did anybody escape the Narada? They were sucked into a wormhole. Right. Mm. And then you think, then if you hadn't read Nero, you could think, oh, well, maybe some of them left early. But as we saw in Nero, uh, the ones that did try to leave early uh, got blasted by Nero himself. Exactly. That's right. In that cool shuttle. Yeah. So, knowing what we know, being omniscient, you know, this is just <laughs> not adding up. Right. Yeah. But all will be revealed soon. I'm, it will I'm be revealed. And and I do like how Kirk right away is saying, I don't know what's going on exactly, but some of this stuff just isn't making sense. Right. They didn't kill. Exactly. That, that That's a big tip-off right there. Right. So. But I'm kind of cool. I, I, I'm I'm kind of cool. Uh, I really like that the they're, they're tying it in, though, to Nero with yeah. the, the Romulans and the tattoos and things like that. Right, right. Well, you know, it, no matter how... Well, I'm not going to say anything else. <laughs> I was about to say something that's going to be a spoiler, which everybody's figured out by now anyway, but whatever. Right, that the Romulans have secretly been taken over by Nero's people. Uh, uh, yeah. yeah. He's on the cover. Nero, he's back. The Genesis planet brought him back to back life. Something. Something. It's going to be a logical explanation. There's got to be. We'll find out in the next issue. I bet. I bet. So, um, <coughs> so we had a lot of aliens at the beginning in the bar. Yeah, they were at a cantina. Ex- a cantina, exactly. I'm surprised there wasn't a band playing. Yes. So uh, I saw a few Andorians. Andorians, yep. And um, Tellarites. Um, Tellarites, Tellarites. Oh, yeah, the bartender? Mm-hmm. Was the bartender Tellarite? Yeah. He is. Oh, that's right. And a big, nasty, ill-tempered guy, too. Um, okay, so there's a chick in there hey, who looks like uh, a lady. Oh. Who looks... Is that an Ocampa? Um, um, okay, so at the bottom of the first page, right on the left, when they're doing the handoff of the plans of the right. Narada, the, the girl is right beneath the deformed hand. Right. Yeah, I see what you're talking about, and she definitely uh, kind of resembles it. But but the the Okampa don't have ears that go that that, that far. I mean, you don't see the top of her head because of his hands in the way. But it kind of looks like maybe you know her ear structure, whatever it is, might go all the way around her head. Right. But yeah, she, I can totally, I see what you're 
where you're, where you're getting that from. She looks a little familiar. I don't know. And then that guy sitting next to her, the uh, the humanoid-looking Morn. Is he the same guy that was standing next to Kirk on? Oh, at the uh, Iowa bar. Good point. <laughs> That's a very good point. I had not, I mean, I, I kind of recognized him a little bit, but I didn't know from where. Yeah, when I got back to that, when I got to that panel, I was like, "Oh, they're they're in the Ohio bar." Yeah, <laughs> and then I was looked back up, and I'm like, "No, it it definitely says they're uh, in a forgotten corner of the Delta Quadrant." There you go, exactly. And I'll just say this because otherwise we'll get letters. The Iowa bar. Yeah, what did I say? Ohio. Oh, Iowa. <laughs> Close <laughs> enough. It's in the Midwest. Whatever. Iowa. That's what I thought I was saying. I can't believe I was saying the wrong thing. Yeah, that's cool. I do it too. Yeah, so don't write your letters. No. So I took care of it, everybody. (laughs) Pens down. Okay. So uh, right there on the first page, we get uh, the return of our famous three-faced feller. Exactly. Yeah, uh, when I first opened the book and saw that it was him, I was like, oh, there you go. (laughs) There he is. I have no idea whether I pronounce his name right, but... I like the way you pronounce his name. I think oh, it's yeah. spot on. Is it? Okay, cool. Because, uh, you know, I've never actually... I mean, we met him at Ruripenthe, but, you know, we never actually heard it pronounced. Right. And then even in the deleted scene, it just shows him getting wailed on. He never actually... They never actually say his name. Oh. Cool. In his speaking line when he admits that he's working with Nero. So this, I guess, proves that he was on the Narada at one point during the big escape, but then somehow left. Right. Yeah. So you know, uh, we had that debate when we were covering exactly the first issue of Nero. Right. So he obviously got off of the planet, and unless there was another shuttle there, he must have done it on the Narada. Right. Yeah. And and Nero let him leave, but didn't let any of the other Romulans leave or. Clavel or whatever his name yeah. was. Yeah, and Clavel, I thought Clavel, well, I thought Clavel wanted to stick around, I don't know. Well, he was supposed to try to calculate where Spock would show up. Right. So he had right. a purpose. I guess, uh, Quoch or whatever his name is. How are you pronouncing it? Quoch. 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 Whatever his name is. Potato, potato. Uh, I, I guess he didn't really have a purpose for Nero, so he let him leave. Right. Probably dropped him on Delta Vega or something. <laughs> yes, people. A lot of people get dropped off there, right? And a lot of planets are named Delta Vega for some yeah. reason. Yeah, about that. So I want to talk about the hot security chicks with the mini skirts. Uh, you mean ladies? Ladies. Yes. Well, you want to talk about? They're hot. Yeah, I li- they're not. The pages aren't numbered, but there's that one shot where. Uh, the Romulan has the gun towards the Vulcan captive's head, and the, the shot above it has the two women on one side of Kirk and Spock on the other side. Yep. And they're all doing their, like, Charlie Angels poses. <laughs> and you know which side of Kirk I'm looking at? Not the Spock side. So, it's good. It's good. Yes, I agree. Security checks. All right, ladies. Sorry. Yeah, and those are some short skirts. Those are really short skirts. I mean, you're seeing all the way up to uh, Argentina. I don't know. It's pretty good. It's nice. I like it. 
<sighs> so what do you think about, I mean, it's consistent with the movie, but yeah. the transporter effect visual of just the swishing a, lines. A, a bunch of uh, squiggles. Yeah. Like, like some kid took scribbled a... Scribbled a circle. Exactly. So, so some kid took a white crayon, which are rare, but they just went... <laughs> In, in oval little circles. Yeah. Right. Um, I think it looks better in the movies. When it's moving, right? Yeah, yeah. It looks a little uh, kind of... I don't know. It's fine. I, it, I'm fine with it. It's very doodly. It's, yeah, it just seems a little low-tech. <laughs> I never... I'll be honest. I didn't really care for it in the movie. I mean, it, it was a different visual, and every movie seems to have a different visual on what the transport effect, effect looks like, so... Oh well, but it what it's not my favorite. So you're you're basically saying the technology is not always your favorite in the movie because I know you don't like the phasers. Uh, yeah, I didn't like the moving phaser bits. Yeah, well, what if it didn't move? Do you like them? Yeah, I do like the shape. I mean, it looks pretty cool. I just didn't yeah. like that it would, you know, stun mode. Yeah. <laughs> Don't pull the trigger while it's flipping, otherwise you'll get like this, you know, yeah, spiral exactly. cut everywhere. Oh, a spiral cut! <laughs> I got gotcha, you. I got gotcha. you. Maybe there's a safety lockout until it's in position. I don't know. Maybe. Maybe. How about the Vulcan ships? I loved them. Yeah. Um, I've got a Vulcan ship for a Hallmark ornament, which looks just like this, or the they bigger of the two, the, the, the science right. vessel. The what was first that? contact one or from Enterprise? I I do not recall. I got it a long time ago, so I'm not. Sh- I don't recall which one it's supposed to be a part of, but it looks pretty much just like the the the, the science vessel, right. not not the smaller ship, the scout ship, but the science right. vessel. Yeah, and it was just it was just to me. I was just a little confused. Like, wow, that looks just like my ornament, and it's like, what time period was that ornament supposed to be from? Um, I was thinking Enterprise because you just mentioned Enterprise there. I was thinking Enterprise, but you know, well, uh, the ship that was in First Contact was similar, but but I'm thinking that these look more like the uh, the Enterprise Vulcan ships. Yeah, right. So Vulcans, they they never change their designs or something. I don't know. This is supposed. To be, this is a lot later than uh, Enterprise, but yeah, about a hundred years. Yep. So. But once you perfected it, why why keep changing it? Why exactly? Change? Change for change's sake? I don't think so. That's illogical. Exactly. (laughs) At least that's what... uh, Yes. That's what those uncreative Vulcans would say. Exactly. Exactly. And I think that's all I have to say about this issue. Go ahead, Donovan. Uh, That's all I have to say, too. Really? I thought it was good. Yeah, I, I like. Oh, well, the it. only good. I did have one other comment, and what? that's the uh, the helmets, the with the face mask, the right the reflective, reflective mm-hmm. masks. Uh, they look a lot like Cobra Commander did in the uh. <laughs> when he had that mask. I think that was the uh, second version of Cobra Commander. Okay. You know, you being a big GI Joe, real American hero fan of the '80s, you would know what I'm talking about, right? Uh, I know that there were <laughs> there was a TV show. And I know there were a few movies, but I really haven't seen any of them. Right. Even though when I was a kid, I was a big G.I. Joe fan. Loved G.I. Joe. The, the the doll? The doll, basically. Yes. Yes, I had a <laughs> bunch of dolls named G.I. Joe. That's right. 
Yeah, I'm I'm a little disappointed that the uh, the GI Joe sequel movie didn't come out today or this this month. Oh right, as it was originally planned. Yeah, that is kind of odd, isn't it? Yeah. So did it basically think it was going to get the snot kicked out of it by superhero movies or what? Uh, I think that's probably one one reason. Another thing I heard was that they didn't like or that the uh, you know the the groups that that review movies. Uh, yeah. Focus groups, whatever you want to call. Oh, them, right. Wasn't too keen on, I guess, some character dying really early in the movie. Oh, so oh. they're reshooting some scenes with that guy. Oh, so kind of like what they had to do uh, when the focus groups weren't too crazy about the first way Kirk died. That's that's right. How did he die? He, he fell off the bridge, right? Or is that how he died? No, he was shot in the back by uh, Sorry. by Soren. Soren shot him in the back. Uh, but then they reshot it and he fell off the bridge, right? Well, he made the conscious, heroic decision to jump on the rickety bridge to get the remote control and save the day, even though he knew he would likely die. Right, that's right. And he being the 60-plus-year-old guy was able to beat Soren. Yeah, in a, in a fist fight. I know he's Kirk. Come on, I agree. I'm just saying. And he was very well rested because being in the Nexus all that time. <laughs> <laughs> and it seemed to me that uh, that Soren was, you know, pretty good in hand to hand. He kicked the snot out of uh, Picard. You know, right. not, not not that Picard was a big judo hand hand combat guy, but still. Right, but if you want to talk about age, I mean, Soren was quite a bit older than Kirk. Because Soren did not live those hundred plus years <clears> in the Nexus. He, he had to point. live on the hard way. Exactly. but Day by day. But at least uh, Soren kept himself in good shape. <laughs> Anyways, shall we move on to Vulcan's Vengeance Part 2? I think that'd be great to see what the heck's going on here. Yeah. So this is issue number eight. It came out April of 2012. Uh, all the writing credits are 100% the same. The cover, again, is the, the large Enterprise Star Trek swoosh in the middle. Uh, within this one is a drop of red matter, a very close-up, a very extreme close-up of a drop of red matter, where we see a needle that's barely breaking the surface tension. And within the red, we can also see kind of an outline shadow of the Narada. Um, outside of the swoosh, there's a large green planet um, on both sides uh, of the left and the right. And then at the lower part of the swoosh, we have a, a picture of Spock and Sarek. And then the incentive, the first, uh, well, the first alternate cover is just the uh, sketch by Tim Bradstreet, and then the uh, photo cover is of McCoy, just a random picture of McCoy, scowling. The story starts off with a Federation shuttlecraft just entering the neutral zone. Within the tiny craft is Kirk McCoy, Security Officer Hindorf, a.k.a. Cupcake from the movie, a female pilot named Zara, and a masked Romulan prisoner. The same one that we got from last issue, we would assume. McCoy is complaining that uh, there's no reason for the chief of medicine to be on this mission. 
Kirk says that he wants to do everything they can to prove to the Romulans that this is a peaceful mission, a humanitarian mission. Zara informs the captain of multiple contacts, and they are soon surrounded by three large Romulan craft. Kirk informs the commander of the craft that they are returning the Romulan prisoner, and they wish to inform the Empire that a few drops of red matter have been stolen and can perhaps be used against them. The commander does not seem to buy it, and states that they are all prisoners of the Empire. The shuttle is soon tractored into the larger craft's hangar bay, and the Romulan commander accuses Kirk of only telling part of the truth. He knows all about the red matter, and he does not see it as a threat since the Romulans were only returning the red matter to the Empire. He informs the crew that they will be returning to Romulus to suffer their deserved punishment, and that their incursion will lead to the next great Romulus Earth War. On the Enterprise, Sulu is at the con. Or, on the Enterprise, Sulu has the con. And Scotty says he does not envy Sulu since he would be itching to follow the captain into the neutral zone. Sulu says, how do you know I'm not? In the Romulus courtroom, Kirk and the crew are being accused of violating the treaty between the Empire and the Federation. Kirk says that neither government is safe as long as red matter exists. The Romulan leader states that it is only dangerous in the wrong hands. And now that the last of Nero's crew have returned it to their home planet, then there is nothing to worry about. He then sentences them to imprisonment for the rest of their days. In a low voice, Kirk assures McCoy that they have another piece on the board. We flash to a nicely furnished apartment, and two of the Romulans, the um, shaved head, tattooed Nero Romulans, uh, uh, are discussing their plans, and they're discussing the plight of the Enterprise group. It is revealed that they are actually Vulcans in disguise. They say that it does not matter that the Enterprise crew is in prison because soon they will deliver the red matter to the Council and detonate it, thus having their vengeance. The door chime beeps and a Romulan guard delivers the masked prisoner that the Enterprise had brought. Once the guard leaves, the prisoner takes off his mask and a bald, tattooed man introduces himself as Spock. Spock tells them that their quest for vengeance is hardly logical. That is when the third Vulcan arrives from the other room, and it is none other than Sarek, father of Spock. Sarek explains to the other Vulcans that he will stay with Spock while they deliver the red matter to the council. The others leave with the weapon in hand. Kirk and company are flying through the city on their way to prison. They're, they're enshackled, surrounded by guards on a little speeder skiff type thing. Kirk quietly confirms with Zara that she will be able to fly the speeder craft. When she states that she could, he then asks Cupcake to show off some of those moves like he did back in Iowa. That is when all the crews snap into action and attack the guards and the pilot. Soon, all the Romulans are being tossed overboard, except for one, who pulls out his disruptor and holds it to McCoy's neck. Before he can take full control of the situation, he is hit in the back with a blast. Another shuttle comes into view, being piloted by Sarek, and Spock is holding the rifle that just took out the last guard. McCoy is shocked to learn that the prisoner that they brought with them was none other than Spock the whole time. 
Spock states that his father has come to his senses and that they must hurry to stop the others before it's too late. In the council room, the Vulcan imposters have just handed the red matter over to the Romulan leader. That's when a booming voice echoes out, Stop! Sarek then explains about the imposters, and then the Vulcan with the detonator is about to press it when the three-finger Vulcan stops him. He has also seen the light and realizes that vengeance is not the answer. Sometime later, the Romulan leader is again passing sentencing. He is sentencing the three Vulcan imposters to life in prison. He is allowing Sarek and the crew of the Enterprise to return to the Federation. He will be keeping the Narada plans and the Red Matter safe within the heart of the Empire. Some more time later, the crew has returned to the Enterprise, and a bald, non-tattooed Spock is telling Kirk that Uhura is not a fan of his new look. Kirk tells his first officer that Pike was none too happy about the Red Matter and the Narada plans remaining with the Romulans. Spock points out that Nero was a madman and not an actual part of the Romulan government, and that the Empire should not go the same route. Kirk states that he hopes that his logic is right. The end. Yeah, you hope, Kirk. Forget <laughs> about it. Look at all the cards they've got at the end of this. I mean, you know, to some degree I was a little surprised that they let him go so easily. Especially Sarek, who was part of the original conspirators. I mean, it was his idea. Right. But then it was like, good God, it's like Christmas Day for the Romulans. I mean, they got red, a chunk of red matter... They got the, the, the plans to the Narada, even though they probably don't understand all of what the plans say. Because remember, these are the, the plans that came from Klingons. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the Klingons didn't understand everything. But still, it's like Christmas. Mm-hmm. It's like, yeah, uh, yeah, you guys go back home and we're going to work on our Christmas gifts. Exactly. And, uh, we'll see you later. <laughs> yeah, when we do the balance of... Uh, if they do the balance of power, balance of terror, balance of terror episode, uh, it'll be definitely a different, uh, a different storyline since the the Romulans may be much more powerful than they were in that episode. Interesting point. Yeah, it was interesting how the Romulans always had that little edge, or at least not not in the yeah. Even in the first issue, we see them balance of terror, where they had the uh, the cloaking field. Mm-hmm. So they always had an advantage over the uh, their Federation counterparts. <clears throat> but now it looks like... Because as far as we know, they don't have cloaking devices, right? Right. At this point? So, We've never seen it. Right. Yeah, they might have it. Who knows? But maybe, maybe their edge is not going to be a cloaking device. Maybe it's going to be these at least partially more advanced crafts based on Narada. Yeah, so maybe some big, long... Borg tentacles things. <laughs> yeah, I agree that uh, that it, it, it did not uh, bode well for the Federation because not only do the Klingons have those plans, but now the Romulans do too. So basically everybody has it but the Federation. <laughs> yeah, it's a good point. I, fr- I didn't think about the Klingons. Although obviously they were still having plenty of problems with them. The engineers were still trying to figure out how to get the thing running. The Narada right. running. So, yeah, they had a lot of chance to, to map out the whole thing and see 
you know, at least outwardly how it was put together, but they they didn't understand the systems. Right. So, we'll see. But but you would think that they would be able to get, you know, at least some Something. some sort of information. Right. Right. You know, oh, they got a replicator. I don't know how to use it, but that might give me an idea of how to make one on my own to kind of uh, do a reverse engineering type thing on it. Right. Hmm. Or <sighs> quantum torpedoes or whatever, you know, because the Narada had some sort of... I mean, Very lot, cool torpedoes. Torpedoes, yeah. Yeah, yeah, with multiple warheads and and big, sharp, clingy things, sharpy things. Yeah, they had uh, spiky things on everything, didn't they? <laughs> Which you can see how that would be very helpful on a torpedo. <laughs> no, but it looked cool. But it looked cool. So I love that Cupcake came along on the mission. Yeah, this is the first time we've seen him, right? Uh, in the comic books, right, right. yeah. So that, that's great. And, and I love that uh, that Kirk continues to take every opportunity to needle him. Right. Hey, Cupcake. <laughs> hey, Cupcake, guess what? I'm the captain now, and I want you on my ship. Right. Well, yeah, he was not, on Pike. You're not going anywhere. Right, right, right. You're you not going anywhere. He would have put in a for transfer. <laughs> oh, man, I better get off this ship. Uh, denied. <laughs> transfer, denied. <laughs> yeah, well, he'll be a red shirt in the next movie. Yeah, probably. Yeah, but it turned out to be uh, pretty good that they had some, you know, some muscle on the trip. Yeah, I didn't really buy it that they were able to overpower all the Romulans, with the exception of that one guy, while they're all still in chains. I mean, those aren't very good shackles if you can still, yeah. you know, throw people. <laughs> sure. You're able to throw people off the ship. Yeah, and, and, and how, were those guys hurt? Were they killed? Did they fall from a high height? Because that, like you know, that might have made made him kind of pissed towards the end. Right. You know, the uh, the counselor or whoever they keep on talking to that looks just like Robert Mitchum. Robert Mitchum. Robert Mitchum. Mm, now, who that is. You, you don't know who Robert Mitchum is? Okay, that's I cool. I do not know who Robert Mitchum is. I had a feeling you might not. You are young. Robert Mitchum was a very popular actor, you know, back in the 40s and 50s and that kind of stuff. So a contemporary of Kirk Douglas and, you know, those kind of guys. So he was in a ton of different movies, slew of different movies. A very good actor. And the thing is, especially towards the middle of the comic, I don't know. Again, they don't put numbers on these things. Somewhere maybe 40% of the way through the comic, there's a particular shot at the top of the page that shows the the, one of the head, the the highest-ranking guys that we see here right. uh, in this comic uh, for the Romulan uh, hierarchy, uh, and he's got two like like eagles at both si- at both sides of his head. Mm-hmm. That is that is Robert Mitchum, spitting image. He did look familiar to me, but I yeah. I, I didn't know if he was just looking like a uh, Romulan that we saw. Did you saw Star before? Did, just later, Google the uh, Google a few pictures of Robert Mitchum, uh, especially when he was younger. And I think you will see the resemblance. And I think it's very interesting that they... Because I think this is, this is blatant. I mean, I think, I think the artists really basically said, you know, I think Robert Mitchum would make a damn good Romulan. <laughs> Let's put him in here. <laughs> I think they did. Because he just looks so close to Robert Mitchum. Anyway. And did he ever do Star Trek? Oh, good God, no. <laughs> okay. He was a real actor. 
Well, that and by the time the '60s came along, he was he was getting up there in the years, you know. Mm. No, I don't know. He never did that. As a matter of fact, I don't even know if he ever did. T- oh, I think there was this one made-for-TV movie he was in, uh, where he turned out to be a murderer or something. Uh, he mostly did movies, not TV. Couldn't be bothered with that kind of stuff. Well, you know, you have your standards, especially TV sci-fi. <laughs> Hmm. All right, I'll look him up. But yeah, like I said, I, I thought he looked kind of familiar. Yeah. But to me, he was looking like, um, uh, and I don't remember his name. Um, Star Trek actor? No. Kind of reminded me of Gidget's dad, the TV show, uh, Gidget. Gidget? Yeah. Gidget? What? Yeah. Like, like back in the 50s or 60s? Yeah, the Sally Field. Oh, okay, right. Okay, Sal- when Sally Field played, played Gidget. I, I have no idea who, who the father was. His name was Don Porter. Maybe that's not him. Hmm. I don't know. I don't know Anyways, Don Porter. Anyways, he, he, like I said, he looked familiar to me, too. I just I didn't know who, who uh, Robert Mitchum was. Otherwise, I might have thought it was him. Oh, my God. Look at that. Oh! But Gidget's I, I, dad. Okay, so a guy named Don played Gidget's dad, and I see a picture of him right now. Yeah, and he doesn't look like him, so never mind. Well, not that much, no. But there's Sally Field as a fresh-faced kid in a bikini. God, she's so young. Oh, well. Okay, moving on. <laughs> so, right. um, yeah, let's see. That's. I think that's all I had to say about this one. Well, you're a big ship guy. We finally get to see what Romulan ships look like in this era, and, uh, and you're not even going to talk about them. Well, okay, fine. Let's talk about them. I'm, I, you know, they're okay. I don't. I think they look kind of schlocky, personally. But well, they look better than the the what the original Birds of Prey in the original. in the original TV show. I, I really liked them. Oh, did you? Uh, well, yeah. they're okay. I mean, you know, I just don't think they're that big a deal. But um, yeah, so. So they do kind of look like the old TV show, Bird of Prey, but it has some fundamental differences. So it's got this, uh, on the main section, there's like this fin coming out of the back, you know, it's like a dorsal fin, and then the opening, the front of it kind of opens up into two kind of like, almost like fangs or something coming out. Um, It's interesting, interesting design. Yeah, I thought it was cool. I mean, it basically it was it's shaped like the normal bird of prey, except it has like that little piece missing in the front. And it's, it's like a cutout of, in the front. Yeah, right. Kind of right, but like but Millennium also Falcon style. Yeah, but also there's a big kind of almost egg shaped. It looks like a cockpit, like a bridge, right? It, well, yeah, it probably is the bridge. But it look, I mean, it looks like a, almost like a cockpit with, with like, like a window in the front and stuff. And obviously, it's not a cockpit. I mean, that's got to be a, a big area, although it kind of right. looks like a small, like a two-man cockpit or something, but obviously it isn't. Right, but when it's compared to the shuttle... Yeah, it's, ty- it, it's, it's a lot bigger. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's huge. Right. Uh, I'm surprised. I thought you'd like that. I like yeah, it. it's, yeah, it, it's okay. It's okay. Hmm. okay. Um... How about the uh, floating speeders? <laughs> the big round things? The big round things they're, they're like floating around in. Yeah, I didn't care for those. They look a little retro. They look right, a little they have retro. Those, like, 
They have like light bulbs on the bottom. Right. There's they got four, four light, light bulbs. bulbs on the bottom, right? Yeah. Yeah. And just painted on the front is the big ang- uh, eagle. Right. And by the way, don't those eagles look an awful lot like Earth eagles? Right. I mean, they didn't get those from Earth. So, you know, parallel development, they just happen to have big birds of prey that look an awful lot like eagles back there? Well, what I don't understand is that we've seen the Romulan Star Empire design, eagle design, in Star Trek Nemesis. And it looked cool. So why not just kind of use that that same, same style? Instead of making it look just like a, an American bald eagle. Right. Yeah, I didn't like that either. Yeah, I thought it just looked a little bit too much like... Uh... Actually, it looks a lot like it's uh, you know, some kind of uh, a German Nazi thing. Exactly. Especially when at, at the council. Yeah. When, like you said, that picture with the, the statues behind him, it looked right. just like the, uh, the Nazi eagle. Right. Yep. That you see in all the Indiana Jones movies. <laughs> <laughs> did, did did I ever mention to? You, oh no, I, I know we talked about this before. Hopefully not on the show, but that great joke on Thirty Rock when when Liz is talking about how she doesn't like uh, St. Patrick's Day. Okay, and then uh, and then the boss Baldwin says something about. Well, because of all the great things your ancestors have done from Germany. She's saying, oh, he's Irish and, you know, St. Patrick's Day. And then he comes right. back and says all the great things the Germans have done. And then one of the things she listed is, you can't have a good Indiana Jones movie without Germans. <laughs> that was a great joke. Love, yeah, I, I love it when they do the geek jokes like that. Yeah, and they stick them in there a lot. They do. I, I like 30 Rock a lot. Yeah, right. Okay, they don't do Star Trek all that often. They really stick to uh, Star, Star Wars. Wars. And... A lot of Star Wars and Indiana Jones. And like, eh, Star Wars, probably most. Yeah, mostly Star Wars. Yeah. Which is fine. It's all good. It's good. Yep. All right. Uh, the last thing I have about this issue is how terrible a plan this this vengeance out... This whole idea of taking this little piece of red matter into the council and then setting it off why do they have to do that extra step to get to the um, council? Why couldn't they just set it off while they're sitting there in that nice apartment? Yeah, that would do it. Because it shows it's sitting there right there next to them yeah. while they're talking about, oh, I can't wait to get to the council and really stick it to them. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, just... really? <clears throat> now, I, well, I, def- I definitely see everything they did to, so they could get to Romulus. Because, of course, you know, they got to go through Romulan space, space to get to Romulus. Right. So the exactly. whole masquerade makes perfect sense. But I, I completely agree with you. Once you get to the planet, it's like, any time now. Yeah, and I could, I wasn't sure. Maybe they didn't have enough red matter to destroy the whole planet. And they just wanted to make sure they got the council. And so that's why they were doing it. I mean, because, you know, when Vulcan blew up, they had to drill up to the core or, or you know, pretty far into the surface before they let it up. Let it yeah. go. Yeah. So I was like, maybe that's why they're but, doing it. But but even if so, I think they could take out at least that whole city, you know, with just that little drop. And, and then another thing is, is that they're sitting in a room that's being guarded, talking plainly about their plans. And I'm like, you don't think that that room's bugged? <laughs> I would. 
I and 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 the Romulans are uh, are probably a tad on the uh, suspicious side of everything, as they should be. Yeah. So, I mean, even if these guys aren't Romulans, they're still Romulans from the future, right? With unknown agendas. Uh, yeah, it did not make sense at all. Exactly. Yeah. And then you know, I always have my soapbox about you know, in normal Star Trek timeline. At this point, the Romulans and Vulcans didn't know they were related to each other. I'm just saying. Yeah. But, you know, the Narada came back. Things happened different. You don't know. Right. I'm just giving them the benefit of it out. Right. Although I would have loved a little miniseries based right after, uh, you know, the Kelvin blew up, where it was, where it explained what changes happen so you know they they scrapped the original constitution class ship design for a bigger batter ship to fight what they thought the romulans had cooked up you know that right. kind of thing and then find out that the romulans are really vulcanoids yes that's a real word <laughs> it is as far as you're concerned and i will support <laughs> that they've used it in star trek so it's okay to say it vulcanoids yeah when um, in Star Trek: The Next Generation, they really? scan that that planet, and it was the the caveman Vulcans that thought Picard was a a god. They called them primitive Vulcanoids. Oh, cool! Hm. I don't remember that show. That's the only that instance I, that comes to mind right now. They, <laughs> they probably used it more. Okay. Okay. Cool. I don't recall it. Anyways. Anything else on this issue? No, no. It's it's kind. Of, it's good that they've dealt with the what you know. There should be some backlash when I mean I don't care how logical you are and supposedly you know not emotional driven. Mm-hmm. Your entire planet got blew up from your well. At least they talk here like they're age old enemies or something. Right. So Which it's like yeah, exactly. Given the original time or the original. Uh, timeline when things happen, but it's like, geez. Um, well, anyway, it's good that they got it out of the way. Right. So, yep. I, I just find it very odd that everybody became, oh, we we, sh- we realized it was a bad thing at the last <laughs> minute. It's like, right, yeah, God, I agree. guys. Uh, I wish uh, they would have had him press the button and it not work. And Sarek said, I disabled it. So you couldn't set it off anyways you know something like that right right kind of like that ambiguous ending of uh the most toys where data's oh yeah beamed just when he's about to maybe kill or maybe not kill fasha or whatever that guy's name was right that kid good memory on his name yeah well that i love that episode yeah it was a good one that's a great episode i i i'd love that and then riker's asking him afterward <laughs> uh the, the the gun must have malfunctioned Right. Commander. What? It's not quite a lie, but it's not the truth. Data, are you lying now? Wow. I right. learned it from Spock. Yeah, well, there you go. All right, shall we jump into nine? Let's do it. So let's get this uh, this third one going. And we've got another story arc. Another story arc, but not necessarily one we haven't seen before. This one's title is... So this is issue number nine, Star Trek Ongoing, IDW. The issue title is Return of the Archons, Part 1. Sounds familiar. 
May 2012. All, all the same people in the uh, creative team. The cover features Sulu within a Starfleet badge swoosh with some kind of leather-based clothing over his normal uniform. Below him are three hooded men with metal staffs that, uh, in the case of the center man, is actually emitting white light and smoke out of the top. The spooky uh, silhouettes of a castle, leafless trees, and possibly a graveyard are in the upper left and right corners. Alternate cover 9B features two cartoony depictions of red-shirted guys taking, or a red-shirted guy taking the blast that was meant for a gold-shirt guy. Both, they both have glasses and are a little on the heavy side for Starfleet members, and we'll have to talk about that cover later. Alternate cover RIA features a monochrome version of the first cover. The alternate cover RIB features a photo of Sulu at his helmsman station on the bridge. Can we talk about the cover now? Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Let's talk about it now. Because I didn't do any research on it. Mm-hmm. But it's like, okay, is that like Orky? And, I mean, is that some guys were, you know, who are um, the guys? What they did is they did a contest. IDW did a contest. Okay. You had to write an essay about why... Your, you know, brick and mortar comic book shop takes care of IDW stuff. You know oh. how they support IDW as a as a company, right? Um, and then you know they they picked the winner one, and then that person gets to be the red shirted guy, and their comic book retailer got to be the gold suited guy. So it's kind of like. You know, because you support the brick-and-mortar comic book shops, uh, you know, you're willing to take a, a shot for, uh, you know, you're willing to protect your comic book shop kind of thing. Oh, cool. Um, I did sign up. I did turn in an essay for that one, but I misread the uh, what the subject was supposed to be, and I just talked about how great the brick-and-mortar comic book shop was and not focusing on how they help. IDW. Oh. So I'm going to go with that's the reason why mine didn't get picked. Because <laughs> <laughs> in this alternate cover, they almost look like the same guys, but the, co- the, the the glasses are different. Definitely. Yeah, I agree that they look like the same guy. Right. But the, but the glasses are definitely different. The hair is different, parted on different sides. But they both have kind of, you know, little roundish faces, little jowly. Right. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it has their name. So it says, Corey Trim protects Mike Broder <laughs> of Fantasy Shop, St. Charles, Missouri. Huh? Cool. Yeah. See, that could have been my jowly face on there. That could have been. And that would have been impressive. That'd be another thing to go in the resume, I'll tell you that. Yeah, so uh, what what happened is that they would produce, like, I think it was 100 comics with with that cover. Right. Give 50 to the winner and 50 to the comic book shop. Oh. So, cool. I don't know how collectible those are going to be, but at least it gave you a... You There's know, not many of them. It gave you a big stack to hand out to people, you know, yeah, I'm on a comic book cover. <laughs> <laughs> That's got to be a collectible, though. I mean, come on. They, haven't, they didn't make many of them. Come yeah, on. no, they, not very many. Very cool, very cool. 
Anyways. Okay, the story opens at Starfleet Academy 18 months ago. Sulu is in a meeting with three high-ranking Starfleet officials that are congratulating him on his excellent achievements at the Academy and new posting to the Enterprise. They offer him an alternate position to consider as uh, some kind of special ops commando kind of guy. This type of job is given only to the best and brightest Academy graduates. It is highly secretive, they tell him. Sulu appears confused but considers the offer. The Starfleet officials tell him they will be in touch. Stardate 2258.241. Kirk is making a log entry concerning their current location at Planet Beta 3. Kirk is investigating an old mystery he heard about from a seasoned academy professor. Over Scotch. It seems that a ship called the Archon went to Beta 3 a hundred years ago and was never heard from again. Kirk, was, Kirk has dispatched Sulu and O'Neill to the planet in local clothing to investigate. The city they, they, the, the city they are beamed into appears out of the late 19th or 18th century that is rather densely populated with old-fashioned brick and shingle buildings. It is night. Sulu and O'Neill are in ninja black outfits moving quickly through the city. They are being followed. Sulu wants to get to the rendezvous point, but does not want to be followed and risk being seen beaming out. O'Neill is not so cautious and takes off running, in the wrong direction, according to Sulu. Sulu attempts to contact the ship, but before contact is made, his attention is taken to his right, and all he can say is, Oh no. Scene cuts to the Enterprise Bridge. Ohura is unsuccessful in her attempt to contact Sulu and O'Neill. Their life signs are not coming up on sensor sweeps either. However, Spock reports that sensors are picking up a strange power source near the location of their beam down. Spock states he was skeptical of the reasons they came to Beta 3, given that Starfleet records show no ship named Archon that came to this world. But since records also show that this planet is supposed to be uninhabited, which it clearly is not, further investigation is warranted. Kirk forms an away team consisting of himself, Spock, a reluctant McCoy, and an unnamed crewman. They all have the same native hooded black outfits that Sulu and O'Neill wore before. They beam down outside of town and walk into the town. They walk through a crowd of natives that appear to be human. They appear to be walking in a daze with no apparent purpose to their walking. They are greeted by several of them and addressed as travelers, so they are recognized as being out-of-towners. Their greetings include wishes that Landru is with them. Kirk attempts to address the cute young lady that addressed him, but she just turns and walks away. McCoy is amused at the lack of effect the old Kirk charm seems to have with her. A set of four gray-hooded men with long metal staffs approach them and tells the landing party to accompany them. It is the will of Landru. The ensign does not take kindly to the aggressive moves being put on him by one of the enforcers, which triggers a fight that the landing party wins. They leave the scene when reinforcements arrive. On the run, in a dark alley, Kirk calls up to the ship. Through bad... Static, Ohura reports that something is affecting the Enterprise. 
Scotty gets on the line and reports a tractor beam from the surface is dragging the ship down to the surface. It's only a matter of time before... They lose the connection. Spock comments on the staff weapons he confiscated from one of the gray hoods as being more advanced than the surroundings. He also says what is happening to the Enterprise is likely related to the strange power source they detected below the ground near here. They need to get to that power source, but first they need to deal with the additional gray hoods coming close or that are closing in on them. As the new group of gray hoods attack, a fifth gray hood attacks them from above, wearing Starfleet-issued boots. The fifth gray hood takes out the other four with ninja moves with his staff. Kirk confesses his confusion when the sole standing gray hood takes down his hood to reveal he is actually Lieutenant Sulu. He tells them O'Neill is captured, but now that they are five in number, they can break him out. Sulu says this place is more of a mystery than any of them originally thought. He takes the landing party through a door into a descending spiral staircase. They pass conduits and instrumentation that looks more like 22nd century tech than the Middle Ages stuff that, uh, that are above on the, uh, in the town above. They eventually enter a huge room that is partially made up of the engines and saucer section of the USS Archon, registration number NCC-189. Very cool drawing. Conduits are running in and out of the starship components. At the base of all of this repurposed starship tech is what appears to be an altar. On the altar is O'Neill, who is seated in a strange chair that has cables coming in and out of it. He appears barely conscious and is surrounded by gray hoods. Sulu gets them up to the altar by acting like a gray hood and telling them he has more souls to be cleansed. When he is close enough, Sulu takes some out with his staff while Kirk and Spock take the rest out with phaser fire. Spock asks if it was wise to use the phasers given the prime directive. Kirk replies that given they made an altar out of a starship, he thinks exposing them to phasers is the least of their contamination. They get O'Neill out of the chair and Sulu checks him out. Spock says the power source is behind the altar. Kirk and Spock use their phasers to blast open the wall that Kirk refers to as the mystery box, and they find a highly sophisticated computer inside, far more advanced than anything the Archon would have had aboard. Spock attempts to tap into it with his tricorder and finds algorithms and code that is clearly Federation tech. Spock conjectures that Starfleet put it here, but did not intend for anyone to find it. Kirk says, when they get back to the ship, he will contact Admiral Pike to find out what this is all about. Sulu calls Kirk and Spock back to the altar to let them know that getting back to the ship might be a problem. Over a hundred natives are at the foot of the altar with unknown intent as Sulu points his phaser weakly towards the mob. To be continued. So, in a bit of a cliffhanger. It did indeed. Indeed. So, what do you think of the computer? Um, I thought the computer was, uh, yeah, eh, interesting. 
So it looks kind of like a pod. The main right, part. Like a, it's like a sphere that's stuck into like a futuristic organ, pipe organ type thing. <laughs> there you go. And then it seems to have these, um, I don't know, like, 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 like blank pink screens kind of floating in space, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, and th- 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 there's like 25 of them or some, you know, some high number just kind of floating there side by side. Right. It's, uh, it's odd. Well, if you remember, one of the plot points in the uh, TV show was okay. that one of their their contact the, Return of the Archons that episode. Right, right, right. Okay, yeah, the, their friend, the one they they befriended, uh, he had a they called it a light panel or something, and it was kind of like that that he had covered up in a blanket, and then when he took the blanket off, it lit everything up, and that was like the first indication that this place had technology beyond what they should have had right so i'm wondering if those panels those floating panels were supposed to be kind of their nod to that oh the original show hmm. oh right right so uh, it's i know you went back to to watch the episode it's been a long time for me so right. um right so that so it was kind of like a light panel or something right it was exactly. just it's just like a lamp kind of thing yeah but it was just like a like a tile right it was just a tile and then when they opened it up light started pouring all over the place. Right. So it was like a battery operated or something. <laughs> right. But uh yeah. Yeah, so I, I don't know what these floating things are, but that was that was what I was thinking of when I saw it. Right. Now the 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 computer looks a heck of a lot cooler now than it did back in the sixties. Because <laughs> <laughs> it was literally like two big plastic looking boxes that uh-huh. the computer. <laughs> with, was talking, I am Andrew. With the typical shifting lights and stuff. Right, and, right. right, right. Yeah, the, the back computer looked like it was higher tech than, than this thing. Than this thing, right. <laughs> and then um, when they use their phasers, and then Kirk says, let's pull out the plug, Spock, or whatever he says. Um, they use their little Type 1 hand phasers, and the animation of the, of the wall disappearing right. is not nearly... As cool looking as the boom that's drawn here, and it says boom in big yellow like font. Yeah, it does. Yeah, so let's let's talk about this altar and the remnants of what must be the USS Archon. Right, right. Now, it, it, it like the there's like two large pillars to each side of the uh, saucer section. Well, no, up to the the altar, right? Well, okay, fine, fine, sure. Mm-hmm. Right in front of the saucer, saucer section, but yes. they're obviously the nacelles, and they're the yes, they're the new Enterprise version of the yes. I agree with where you're going. I and think this is supposed to be a hundred years ago. Yes, which is like two years or ten years after the last episode of Enterprise. Yes. And then, and then when you think of what the Kelvin looked like and its and its engine that looked relatively, you know, it it was a tube, right? You know, it was a pretty nondescript tube. Um, right. And these engines are, I mean, they're falling apart, but right, right, you can right. see enough detail to them that they look kind of, you know, kind of sleek and advanced. Right. I just wish they would. I mean. The Archon has been in other expanded universe stuff, and it's usually depicted as, like, 
you know, like those old school medical frigate type um, in, uh, ships with the big ball, kind of like the the Pascal oh. crusher mm-hmm. ship. Right. But you know, the old, old, old version of those. Right. Where this looks like it was a cons- the new Constitution class ship. Yeah. I, I mean, you only see part of the saucer section, but you see right. enough that it looks. But it's not. Like, you know, that's not a sphere. It's it looks flat, like the like the Enterprise. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Definitely looks flat. So I just, you know, with it now, you know, with Enterprise being the TV show Enterprise, right? Kind of establishing what the tech looked like at that time. Why would this comic book not kind of follow suit? Unless they're going to go with some sort of explanation, because they do say that the the Landru computer is is Federation and not a hundred years old. No. No, it's so. it's advanced. So, for me, it seems like there's two things going on here. There's a repurposed, supposedly 100-year-old spaceship that's been used by somebody. Mm-hmm. Um, but then it seems almost like a separate thread, but maybe not. There's an advanced computer that may or may not be some part of this mystery group from Starfleet that was trying to recruit Sulu. Right. So it's like, it seems like there's two different things going on here, but is it? I don't know. I Actually, I think it's kind of cool because I don't know what's happening. Right. Yeah, and you don't know what the mystery group was that was recruiting Sulu. Yes. Does it, is it perhaps the uh, Section 50-something? What was that? Section what? Uh, 31, wasn't it? 31. Okay, so section is it perhaps Section 31? Hmm? I don't know. Or with the whole talk about time displacement, you know, how this is a Federation ship that's 100 years old that looks new, and this uh, sphere <coughs> computer is Starfleet, but more advanced than what you have now. Uh, maybe it was the, you know, internal, the temporal internal affairs thing. Oh. Yeah, but look at look at the registration number, though. Yeah, I know. Uh, it doesn't make sense. <laughs> that the, part doesn't make sense. That theory doesn't jive with the registration number. Well, but it might jive with, you know, who those people were. Right. So, kudos but, to the idea that we have a real mystery here. Right. Now, in the previous two-issue story arc, it was it became kind of clear, kind of quick, that, you know, these are Vulcans masquerading as Romulans. Odds are. Right. You know, it, it you know, didn't take long to figure that out. But this, hmm, it's interesting. Yep. And uh giving okay, first off, Sulu's pretty bad, bad bad ASS here in this issue. And he yeah. was he was pretty good in the uh you know, in the original two thousand nine movie with the uh sword that, that, that popped out, which was pretty cool. <laughs> um but he is Joe Martial Arts here, man. Uh, and, and, and I kind of like that better than what happened in the TV show where he and O'Neill just got co-opted into the Landru collective or whatever. Well, actually, yeah, uh, Sulu's only in like the first like five minutes of the show. Right. He gets zapped with the, zapped with the bow staff right when he's getting beamed up so that when he shows up on the Enterprise, he's like. Oh, it's so peaceful down there. Everything's uh-huh. so great. Landrew yeah. is so wonderful. Yeah, yeah. Uh, right. And then O'Neill really never shows up right. awake for the rest of the movie. Right. 
<laughs> so I, I do like that Sulu is badass enough that he's able to yeah. avoid capture, and not only that, do some pretty doggone good reconnaissance and take out four guys at once. Right. Yeah. <laughs> okay. well, I, I agree. I like that they're giving him more of a, a role. Right. I mean, even in the last issue, there was one page where they were on the Enterprise uh, while Kirk and them were in on Romulus. Yeah, right. And instead of Scotty being in yes. the captain's chair, very like good point. he is at the normal show, Sulu was in the captain's That's chair. That's an excellent point. Excellent point. Yeah, so, so Scotty was always a higher rank, and he tended to be in command more often. However, at least so far... The way they actually, I think it's very interesting the way they've spun McCoy and Scotty so far, that are quite different, I think, from the original uh, traditional characteristics of those characters. So, in the case of Scotty, he seems to be really a tech. His head is in the tech. Right. You know, he's really not much into command. It's like, no, let let me work with the engines. I I don't want the con. That, That I'm getting that impression. Um, I mean, he's got the red shirt. That's not, you know, that's not gold. You know, command tunic he's got on, so he's kind right. of off there. And the other thing is, it, I didn't mention it in the synopsis, and maybe you didn't either, but basically McCoy keeps on complaining about him leaving sickbay. I mean, yeah. every time every time he goes off, you know, he, so he goes off in the previous uh, issues to Romulus, he's not too happy about it. He'd rather be back in sickbay. And in this one, too, going down to uh, Beta 3... He's also saying, I should be with my patients. And, uh, and Kirk is saying, you don't have any patients. I keep track. So it's kind of funny. <laughs> I like it. I think that's great. And he's cantankerous. I like that. But I don't know. He's going to make it off as kind of a wimp. Yeah. I- I'm wondering if there's something, you know, that's another plot point they're going to bring up in a later issue that right. there is something going on in Sig Bay that maybe Kirk doesn't know about. Well, maybe. Or maybe that, you know, they're just. Just in some ways, these characters are a little different than they were before. Right. Yeah. And this may play into the idea that he really doesn't like to have his atoms scattered all over. Yeah, good point. So. Good point. That's something the original McCoy never liked, but he never whined about it. Yeah, uh, and he, he went ever, on away missions. Did he ever whine about it until the movie? Uh, well, I, I don't know. Maybe. Maybe not. Yeah. But but I do know that he he, he definitely didn't like his atoms scattered all over. Right. Um, but I've seen the Prestige. I wouldn't want it either. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a good movie. Love that movie. Yeah. Um. So uh, anyway, so I, I think those two characters are, you know, have the macho, <laughs> the, the macho dials turned down a bit, and uh, Sulu's got it cranked. He's muy, muy macho. Right. Yeah, I definitely like like him in here. Right. And I'm looking forward to seeing if he accepted that job 18 months ago or if he's hasn't decided yet. Well. I'm waiting for another flashback where it'll say that he's been on this secret mission all along. Right. Or another possibility is they said, we'll contact you. Uh, good point. And they haven't contacted him yet. Until just before this mission. Yeah, well, we'll, we'll see next issue. And and I got I got to bring it up, the idea of a crew member actually having like a dual 
career path or <laughs> a little duplicity going on, being part of some kind of covert Starfleet whatever, is not, this is not the first time this has happened. It's, it's been reused several times. So you had brought up uh, in a text earlier, uh, Bashir. Right, where he was part of Section 31. There you go. And we got to see when he was... Re- we got to see when he was recruited for that, right? Yeah. yeah he was recruited and then they, the blonde they guy? brought it up once Whatever or twice his name a year. Is. Right, okay. And then, um, and then Malcolm Reed. It turned out he was... I don't remember the details of that. But I do remember there was an there was an episode, Enterprise episode, where Malcolm turned out to be kind of some spy guy or something, and and he actually did something that uh, was against uh, Archer's orders or something. Right, right. So he had to choose between the two, and he made amends finally. But still, I mean, I wonder how this is going to turn out. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. Uh, I like where they're going with this. And of all the adaptations of the TV shows that we've read so far, mm-hmm. this is the one that's adding the most new stuff. Right. So all the other ones, you know, they had little tweaks to the original story, but for the most part, it was the original story. Right. Where this one, they 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 dropped a good chunk of the original episode, and they they've added, you know, little plot twists and things like that, which which I right. really like. Yeah, I do. So far, and I gotta say it, so far, they got things nicely set up. I do like this a lot better than the original TV show. But we haven't seen the second half yet, so because this is not a good episode. No, of the original show, I, no. it's not one of my favorites. No, no, it isn't. It isn't one of my favorites either. It's it's just um, it's kind of like a throwaway episode. It's like yeah, it's there, but you know, right? I mean, yeah, it's basically not they had an old western set. From probably some <laughs> other movie or TV show, so they just repurposed it. They all beamed down in you know their best bonanza attire, mm-hmm. and they don't ever explain why they all look like you know the human Wild West. You know that's never even acknowledged, right? Uh, and that, so it's like the Wild West with these monks that have the staff every once in a while. And I think it went back to that same thing that Roddenberry talked about when he was trying to get the series first launched off the ground. Westerns were were very popular, yeah, you right. know, back in the mid you know mid to late sixties. And okay, they'll look like, it's look, it'll make it look like a western if we set this we if we set this in sign of a western planet or something. Right, right. Maybe that's what they were doing. I don't know. Yeah, well, it was just cost savings i mean this set was already built so let's just do an episode there but i think for the most part they usually tried to explain it you know oh this uh parallel this looks like gangster new york but uh, a book was left very inventive people whatever so anyways uh and also in that episode which i guess we will probably cover more the next time we, we talk about the ongoing is the landrew personality in the episode you know, was 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 not Federation. So we'll no. see how that plays out in issue number uh, ten. See if it how how it how close it matches the episode. Right. Sounds good. Okay, that was my last comment. Anything for you? Um, let's. Sh- I think I. Oh, I just want to mention uh, 
being attacked. Or two two things I want to mention. Number one, uh, Kirk refers to the altar wall as being the mystery box, mm-hmm. which I thought that was a nice nod to J.J. Abrams and his you know mystery box thing from his childhood. Right. And then uh, also the tricorder Spock is using. Um, I, I'm not. I don't. They must have used a tricorder before. You know, between the TV show, or not, I mean, between the movie and between the comics. But quite frankly, I don't remember seeing this this tricorder he's using, Spock is using before. Where is he using it? Um, well, when they're trying to figure out the computer. So, so they're in, they're behind the altar, they're in front of the computer, and Spock is using his tricorder. Oh yeah, isn't that the same kind of tricorder he had when he beamed down the Vulcan when it was blowing up? Oh, in the movie? Yeah. I don't remember him having a tricorder. Mm, I think he did. I think he had that okay. thing that had like the round discus look. Okay. Well, I don't remember that in the movie. And this is the first time I think I've seen this, but I could have just missed it. But well, but it, it is interesting. I mean, yeah, it, I it looks kind of like a speaking spell. <laughs> I mean, it's <laughs> it's an odd design. I'm not sure I like it. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it looks like a dinner plate or something. You know, a, a spherical, not spherical, uh, well, I guess kind of plate-shaped thing. And then it seems to have, like, a little maybe more squared-off part on the bottom that might have, like, buttons. I'm not sure. Right, yeah. So it looks a little bit like maybe the display is in the dinner dish, <laughs> and then the, the controls are in, like, the kind of more squared-off thing at the bottom. I don't right. know. Yeah. But, you know... I'm not so sure I like it. Oh, really? Yeah. Hmm. I'll, I'll go back and watch the, you know, just take a, a quick look at the movie, because that might give me a better view of it. Well, so you like it? Uh, it doesn't bother me. Yeah. It looks different. It looks like a speaking it, spell. It's not one of those big, giant boxes that they had in the Gold Key comic. Oh, God. No, that's good. Um, Yeah. And speaking of Gold Key Comics, uh, unfortunately the pages aren't numbered, but when they first beam down to the planet, mm-hmm. um, the Kirk and Spock, yeah. it is funny that when the people are walking by saying, Landrew, be with you, that Spock says, fascinating, they speak Federation Standard. Oh, yes, yes. Instead of Esperanto. Esperanto, yes. They need to really do their research. Well, wait, okay, who needs to do their research? Uh, I know you're being funny, but... <laughs> the writers of this. Oh, okay, so you're saying they should be saying Esperanto. Of course. Yeah, right. Even though the only time Esperanto was ever mentioned, to the best of my knowledge, was in Gold Key Comics. Exactly. Which I would say is about as far from canon as you can get. <laughs> yes, but it would have been awesome. <laughs> and with IDW... Oh, no, IDW is not doing the reprints of the Gold Key, but you know the Gold Key stuff is getting reprinted now, so I think more people are reading it now than back when I was a kid. So, could be. It would be a nice little nod to everybody that knew what the hell they were talking about. He could have said Esperanta Federation Standard. You know. Yeah, he could have resurrected just been a that cool idea. Little tip of the hat. Anyways, there you go. All right, we done. I think we're done. That's all I have to say. All right, so we're gonna real quickly go over the expanded universe. Not a lot happened uh, earlier this year. Uh, In March of 2012, the final novel of the Vanguard system, um, Vanguard series, came out called "Storming Heaven" by David Mack. April 
there was a novel based in the uh, original series timeline called, you ready for this? Department of Temporal Investigations, mm-hmm. entitled Forgotten History by Christopher L. Bennett. Hmm. And then May came out with Plagues of Night, which was part of the Typhon or Typhon Pact story arc that kind of ties in all of the Star Trek post-Nemesis um, series into a, one large story. Oh. Hmm. So, it uh, again, I'm trying not to spoil myself too much on that stuff because I want to get there. But that was written by David R. George III. Hmm. But I do know a little bit about it. They actually are even tying in Enterprise to that that story arc. Hmm. So, uh, so we get to see more of what happened with Beta slash Data? Beta slash Data? Uh, no, I don't or think... Or B4? No, it's before... before. It's I mean, it's be- oh, before, I it's thought it was... before Data is resurrected. Oh. So oh. It's, when, it's when Picard is still captain of the Enterprise. Yeah, so it's, right. It's just like a, a so year it's po- it's, after Nemesis. It's post-Nemesis. Post-Nemesis before right. Countdown. Okay, but it's... Right. Okay, but still, B4 is there on the ship. Uh, I don't think he is. He. I've read a few of the post-Nemesis stuff, and he's he's off in storage somewhere. Because does it does it Picard even say that that you know he's telling before about Data's sacrifice before he gets sent off somewhere at the end of Nemesis? Maybe I totally missed it, but I had the impression that before was going to stay on the ship and not not as a Data replacement. But I thought he was going to stay on the ship, and it was going to be the uh, Picard gets to go start all over again with learn, with teaching a robot how to be a human or something. But that was probably no. my own uh, my well, own impression. He goes off to the the Dainston Institute or Daystrom, uh, Daystrom, whatever it was. Oh. Yep. So that's it. And that's where the they that's where they load data into him. I don't know where they load data into him. Hmm. That happens later. Mm-hmm. Cool. All right. So uh, next week we are. Going back to the 90s, and we'll do, let's see, let me get out of this. Uh, we're going to go to the um, uh, nine, episode 91, will be uh, original series and next generation annual number three. Oh. So we only got two issues next week. Okay, but they're big, they're blockbusters. Yeah, these they're are beefy. These, yeah. Cool. Giants. All right. And I don't remember them at all, so I'm looking forward to reading them. I, I'm never sure read I've them, read so. them, but I can't think of what the story arcs story arcs are. Okay, good. It'll be something new for both of us. Exactly. So uh, I guess until then, we'll we'll talk to you guys later. Oh yeah, sounds good. And uh, I'm gonna I'm still looking forward to the Return of the Archons part two. Yeah, unfortunately, we won't cover that until episode 100. Wow. That's an important episode. I know, right? Maybe we maybe we should do something else, but well, I don't know. The that's, schedule, that's what we got. Well, no, that's <laughs> that's pretty cool. I mean, I I like coming back to the ongoing comics. Yeah, I think that's yeah. pretty special. Yeah, yeah. Episode one hundred. It's a almost like you planned it. What's that? It's almost like you planned it. I know, right? But I didn't. So <laughs> <laughs> okay. 
just take credit and be happy. Okay. Well, see you next week, everybody. On the review. Thank you for listening to Star Trek Comic Book Review. All Star Trek stories and characters are copyrighted CBS Studios Incorporated. All music stories and characters discussed are for entertainment purposes only. You can email us at startcomicbookreview at gmail.com. Visit us at our website, www.stcomicbookreview.com. Subscribe to us via iTunes or friend us on Facebook at first name stcomic, second name book review. See you next time on Star Trek Comic Book Review.